when you're ready, Liz. Oh, we're going to go straight into the, the script when I have to like remember my name and things, right? The bit that I'm always Yeah, doing. I know. Right. It's hard, but we can do right. it. I believe All in right. it. I believe in Okay. All right. Let's do it. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're not doing that. No, no, this month we're recording live for the Australian Discworld Convention's online event, Nullus Anxietus, The Lost Con! Um, We can't hear you applauding, but we assume you are. I assume there's there's copious applause, so you know. Uh, so we're taking the opportunity to look back and discuss Men at Arms, um, a book that is gone but not forgotten. And this is a book we discussed way back in our very first episode with special guest Cal Wilson, who is not here today. But hello to all of the online convention attendees watching live right now. Hooray! Thank you for joining us. It is quite a trip not being able to hear like, if people are laughing or responses, but I just, you know, I guess we I should mean, be used to that. In that way, it's very much like recording a regular episode, isn't it? <laughs> or just having a normal conversation where you make a joke and no one laughs and and then you leave. And yes. a, a bit sad about it. I, I mm. Yes, I know the feeling. Yes. Well, that's all right. But but we are. We thought for the oh, someone in the chat saying um, they're surprised we can't hear them laughing <laughs> from where they are. <laughs> uh, but look, we thought for this episode, we we're only doing a very short one today by the standards of our usual ridiculously long uh, podcast episodes. So we thought we'd go back and take the opportunity to discuss an old book. And what better to suit the theme of the City of 1000 Surprises than the watch book, which really immerses the reader in that city, Ankh-Morpork, and really gets into the meat of the Watch series and introduces us to so many characters or really puts meat on the bones. The meeting, (laughs) yes, of so many characters other than Men-at-Arms, which, you know, this was a controversial choice among listeners at the time for our first book, Liz. It was a controversial choice between the two of us as well because we each went... It wasn't like a fight, but we each had like an opinion on what book it should be for us, and one of us won. I won't say which one <laughs> of by, us by did. By a tiny margin, Liz. Yes, but I mean, a tiny victory. margin is still a margin, so you know. Okay, well, look, if modern politics have taught us anything, it's that, <laughs> that the tiniest of margins can mean a great deal. Yes, it's true. We nominated two books, Men at Arms and Mort, to be the first one that we discussed, because we thought... I don't want to speak for you, Liz, but I think our, our feeling was we really wanted to start with a book that felt like a Discworld book because we wanted people to get into what most of the episodes and most of the books that we'd be discussing would be like. Mm. And I think this came out in the conversation we had, like, I don't know how many years ago it was now, but this one is kind of like a taster plate, I felt, for what the series is like. So you do meet a lot of the characters, but it's not overwhelming. Uh, you don't meet the witches, unfortunately, though that probably would have been a little bit too much plot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's just good to get a sample across all of Discworld. 
if you're jumping in like cold. Yeah. And it's also just a really good book. I think it's probably Pratchett's first, certainly in the Discworld books, his first great mystery. I mean, it's one of those mysteries where it's not that you don't know who did it. (laughs) Many of the watch books are kind of like that. We know who the the villain is, but it's how are they going to figure this out and how they're going to stop them. But it's great. And it's also continuing that tradition of something from the real world coming into the disc world and having that influence. And in this case, it's a gun. Yeah. Or gone. Um, Because this being our first episode, we did have a lot of like, how do we pronounce it now that we're saying things out loud? Yeah. You can go back and listen to Pratchett episode one anytime. We recommend it. It's like traveling back in time to 2017. But we thought it might be fun to include a few relevant excerpts in this episode. Like this one. As I was reading that, I'm like, this is the kind of book where you've never heard these names out loud. And I'm realizing yes. my pronunciations could be quite contentious. Well, I was thinking about yeah. that on the way here. Because I was thinking, I've be, I, in my head, I say Angua. Me too. Yeah, Angua. Yeah, I think I normally say that. But then I'm more like, but surely it would be like Angua? I don't know. But Angua, I think, is probably is better. Let's stick with that. We'll stick with that. It's our Hermione moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I mean, it's everybody I think has that issue when you've read a lot of fantasy books and then you come to discuss it. They're all made up. There is no correct way. Right. I, I mean, except probably there is author's choice, I think. Mm. But we can't check that necessarily. But, no. Yeah. I wonder if any of the readers of the audiobooks have ever made a choice about that, which Pratchett maybe didn't agree with. I think that seems unlikely to me because he seems to be mates with everyone who who worked on Mm. those. So, yeah, I'm sure they all knew what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. For those of you, we don't want to assume that everybody listens to the podcast because we know that's probably not true um, Mm. as much as we might like it to be. So this was our first episode and we were still figuring out the format. I went back and looked. I've got, this is my original notebook. It didn't have the (laughs) Pratchett sticker back then because we didn't have Pratchett stickers back then. We do now. But I, we weren't sure how it was going to work, really, in this first episode. But the, the basic structure of the episode is we do an intro like we did for this one. Or we read the blurb. We have a chat to our guest, which we, we normally have a guest. And then we talk about the book for up to two hours <laughs> uh, before you we mean, get into sometimes answering more. some questions. Yeah, sometimes more. I mean, some of our recordings have gone for three or even three and a half hours. And then it's all about cutting it down to a, a reasonable level. And uh, we weren't sure, you know, if we were going to have little segments or little headings and stuff. So I just, I got out my first page here. I had a few things. Uh, we had um, pun watch, uh, which was unnecessary because you usually pick out all the best puns anyway. Yeah. Um, and I've got also uh, font watch, which is something I wish I'd kept up with because Patchett is a, he loves denoting particular characters by the way that they're written and the either the font or the style of writing. And there was a really interesting point specifically in this book about like how Edward de Eith, however we're saying it, he could think in italics. That was the thing. And so they such people need to be watched, preferably from a safe distance. And you pointed out that whenever the gun has a, has dialogue, it's also Mm. in italics. So that was, I thought quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's thinking. Mm. Which I think, yeah. And I don't know if that's intentionally meant to, but it kind of could be that to indicate that the gun's not so much speaking as it's like inserting thoughts into someone's brain. Um, yeah. Yeah, but if you did do that know. section, you'd have to call it a font of knowledge. So, <laughs> uh, Okay, this is why. For those who don't listen to the podcast, there will be puns. That is, You're welcome. Is, 
Yes, uh, they are a great <laughs> gift to the world. I sometimes have seemed perhaps ungrateful for this gift, but I promise I do enjoy them. Uh, Is that what the noises of suffering mean, like ungratefulness? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe a little. Uh, no, it's fine. Yeah, my notes, I've, I write, I used to write way too many, I write way too many notes. There's like six or seven pages of notes here. And a lot of them are just like, talk about this line. What does this mean? Uh, I think we did talk about most of them, but then I tried to do a summary of each character and, uh, and this was so long ago now, Liz, this is November, 2017 <laughs> feels like forever ago. See, your system is so much more like sophisticated than mine though, which is actually to just get an A4 piece of paper, fold it up into quarters. And then I have sections from each of the notes, quotes, footnotes, and other. And then I use that as the bookmark and go through as well. So <laughs> It's been working so far, except for the fact that I um, threw some of them away, which has put me in hot water for this one, because I don't know what I thought beyond the fact that we have an hour and a half recording of all of the things that we thought. So <laughs> It's true. That's all right. Yeah. We can go back and revisit those at any time. I mean, not that I have. We have so many outtakes. This is something else. Like when I when we're editing them, the bits that we cut out, if they're, if they're long, like if it's a diversion, we're like, we're just going to cut this out because it's like three minutes and we can use that time to make the podcast a bit tighter and shorter i keep those and every now and then we'll put out some of those outtakes to our subscribers on our special subscriber only bonus podcast or occasionally throw them into other things i, I put one we recently had a, a short notice change to our reading schedule and i put out a little extra bit in the in the podcast stream to say hey we're going to move the book we were going to read off for a month we're going to do a short story and as a reward for listening to this announcement <laughs> here's a little bit we cut out of a previous episode that's quite fun yeah, a little bit of behind the scenes is that we do have more tangents than um, Bondi Beach. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, yes. when, so when are you <laughs> writing your comic fantasy novel, Liz? That's my question to you today. When's it happening? Um, I, I guess never because the, the benchmark is too high. Like, you, I just, just it's, it's too intimidating to, <laughs> to even try. There's, there's good ones out there. I don't need to compete. No nonsense i i don't i don't think that's true at all i've read some really <laughs> bad ones uh so i'm sure yours would be way better than that like you don't you don't have to be the than... best liz you just got to be good yes you're... i do you've got to be the best you're... otherwise don't try oh no oh, oh this is a disaster um well look uh we we should let's let's think about men at arms though let's get back to the book now that you know who we are and what we do i'm really happy we picked this as our first one yeah really happy it is such a good introduction and yes it, it is a sequel it's not the first guards book but you can't you don't really need to know what happened in guards guards to enjoy men at arms like that's one of the geniuses of the discworld series there's 41 books but pretty much all of them work if you read them on their own which is great mm. that's not a problem um and yeah just it's just so much fun and it's a bit it's it's got some meat to it as well because it's a bit longer than some of the earlier ones and I do love a whodunit, but it's it's like subverting the whodunit genre as well because it kind of doesn't really matter. Like we like, I don't want to go into spoilers, even though I'm pretty sure everyone here will have read it. But in the end, I feel like it doesn't matter who the revealed murderer was because the real murderer is the gone. Like I feel like whoever it had been presented to probably would have been corrupted by it, unless it was Carrot. Um. <laughs> yes. so, so that's why it didn't really matter who specifically it was because it was just acting through someone else like that was the real source of the villainy and the murder and the killing in this one mm. 
I don't know if we discussed this in the episode. What do you think would have happened if Carrot had picked up the gun? I reckon he would have cracked it in half and thrown it, put it neatly into the recycling. I was going to say threw it into the ink, <laughs> but that's not his, that's not Carrot energy, is it? No, it would have just bounced off anyway. I remember this, there were several things that ha- came up in this first episode that we sort of have revisited over the years. One of which was the amazingly great descriptions of the River Ank in this book, including, uh, there's a great one. Uh, where is it? It's quite near this. It's in the middle here. The River Ank is probably the only river in the universe on which the investigators can chalk the outline of the corpse, <laughs> which, uh, I thought was great. Like, and, th- and then every time we've come to a book and there's a description of the River Ank, we have felt like we've come home. Yeah. And the thing that I realized that I had forgotten a little bit listening back to this episode was that I still get this sometimes whenever they mention the ank I cannot stop myself from picturing myself drinking it because I talk about the water so much so I'm just sort of go hmm, what would that taste like and then it just like I feel like a queasy but I can't stop myself going hmm wonder what just a big old mouthful of ank would be like I don't you couldn't Horrible. drink it it'd well, be you, more like a, a weird cake you'd have to slice no, a cut a slice out of it I think isn't like an old bar as they used to have a spittoon and that was so like oh, it would be like yeah. drinking that and you'd have to drink all of it because it would be stuff. Um, this is this is one of the ta- it's getting gross. It's so, yeah, getting sorry. Gross. Um, I this remind though no, there's a video game based on uh, the online game Kingdom of Loathing and uh, it's called West of Loathing so it's like a western game but you can go into all these saloons and in every one there's a spittoon and you can get into the spittoon to see what's in there but you have to get past a whole bunch of dialogue options telling you that this is a terrible idea what what's wrong with you why are you putting your hand in a spittoon um, I mean, which i think fair is, question i think yeah very yeah. very reasonable also uh, someone just mentioned the yara in the chat and i that's <laughs> that's exactly where we go i think when we think of the ank uh, obviously not modeled on the yara and the poor old yara of course used to be a beautiful pristine piece of water until you know europeans came and mucked it all up it was a big side of industry, wasn't it? They did a lot of like tanning and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and the the main city was always kind of next door to it. So it's so the, certainly the bit that we're all familiar with from the CBD of what is now Melbourne is not that. Uh, it's not it's not pristine and delightful. So yes, it, it's all gotten gross, but it's clearly based on at least partly on the Thames. Anyway, but that's that Men at Arms itself is is introducing us to all of these concepts, including the Ank, the Watch all the watch characters, but also a lot of the other side characters of Ank Morpork. Mm. Like we even get a bit of Dibbler in there, not as much as I'd like, but probably more than we need. Yeah. Well, because a lot of them, a lot of those characters that we think of ubiquitous who are always in any book that's set in Ank Morpork, a lot of them don't even appear in t- until Guards Guards, even though there are several books that have parts in Ank Morpork before that. But Guards Guards kind of the first one that's really all set in the city and then that's where we meet Dibbler for the first time, where we meet Detritus for the first time, or Detritus. I mean, again, you know. I, I'm going to say Detritus because it's like, you know, the, the stuff over a forest floor. It makes sense to me that that would be a good troll name. Well, yeah, I agree. But that's how I pronounce that word. I say Detritus. But I again. True. And itis does mean inflammation. Like anything that has itis at the end of it that's medical means like, so like dermatitis is inflammation of the dermis. You know, so. What de- would detritus, detritus be? Inflammation, inflammation of, of the, the detra. Detra. <laughs> you know, know you're detra. Means. Everyone's detra. So, I, oh, people, people are giving us feedback on our pronunciations chat, so. now. This is a disaster. Uh, why did we ever agree to do this live? No, uh, it's a great idea. I was going <laughs> to go on about itis, but I feel like we're not here to talk about inflammation. So 
Let's move on. <laughs> but we are anyway. Detritus is an interesting one too, because is it detritus or detritus? I would say detritus. I say I detritus. detritus. But there you go, see, because it's a real word and it has more than one pronunciation. Yep. So we'll just all say it in our own way. Um, mm. Viewers, if you, uh, listeners, you're not viewers. Uh, if you if you are watching us, that's creepy. Stop it now. <laughs> um, if you have opinions about the correct way to pronounce the names, please let us know. We'll talk about that on a future podcast. But we should talk about the watch, though, because this is the book where the watch becomes the watch that we're familiar with, not just because of the way that they're written uh, and the, their characterizations, which are... Much more what we're used to than, say, Guards, Guards, where Vimes in particular is quite different in Guards, Guards, but also where we get a couple of members joining who are so important. This is when uh, Detritus, I have to say it that way now, apparently, because <laughs> it's Latin, um, but uh, Detritus and uh, Angua Angua. and also uh, Cuddy join. Um, uh, don't oh, don't talk to me about Cuddy. Because we have to talk about Cuddy. I, I didn't think so much. He- because I didn't think he'd be introduced and die in the same book. And I remember the first time rereading this, I had conflated him and Cheery as being mm. the same character because it had been so long since I'd read it when we first went back to this. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then when he died, I was just like, excuse me? Yeah. And I was waiting for it to be undone, for it to be a mistake. And then it was just very upsetting. So Yeah. I always – I mean, I love Cuddy. It's weird that for a very traditional dwarf, he really makes – I think I said this in back in in Pratchett number one, but the that he makes such an impression in such a reasonably short period of time, but also it's just the friendship that he has with Detritus or Detritus. I'm never going to get it right. Uh, are is so delightful and wonderful. Um, I always hoped that he would get mentioned in later books, at least in passing. And I think I think there's like one sort of oblique sideways mention where Detritus is wearing the helmet, the cooling helmet. And I think he vaguely says something like, this was made by a friend of mine. And I was like, <gasps> but I, but I think maybe also I'm, I'm imagining that it went that far. I don't think it was ever. Um, so there's some downsides to, to making every book really approachable to a new reader because you don't get those sort of nice revisits. You don't get those sort of like direct callbacks to characters who aren't there. Um, but there are some nice callbacks within the book itself, I guess, because it is quite like a lengthy story. And there's also like the mention of Sword in the Stone and then like it just kind of comes around. But I do like coming back to it is like meeting friends again. But hmm. I agree with you in that it's, yeah, I agree with you in that it's, yeah. So <laughs> there's that. The kind of <laughs> scintillating commentary that would normally get cut out. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> The um, there's there's a few there's there's some oddities in the book, but we we were talking about the watch though. They really make themselves felt as a presence. Like we know who they are now from this book, but I think there's still things that, in retrospect, like we talked about this at the time. But I think looking back on it now, we maybe I don't know if we feel differently. Uh, three and a half years down the line, do we feel differently about, for example, the romance between Angua and Carrot, which at the time we did not find very convincing. When I was reading it, I was like, well, I like both of them and they're both yeah. smart and attractive and, yeah, we like we like them. So, of course, we, we kind of want them to get together. But they also just feels like they're fated to get together and there's no real chemistry. Yeah, they wouldn't have done them. it by themselves. No. Yeah, yeah, I think in later books he kind of nails that better. But in this one yeah. it's like you just have to be together. There's no... 
And she, the way she talks about him is just sort of observing the way other people relate to him. Yeah, and also she's kind of, um, I feel like it's that, like when there was a, a, a new reboot of Scooby-Doo and they made mm. Velma fall in love with Shaggy, I was like, no, the smart woman doesn't go for the dumb guy. Like, yeah. And I'm not saying that Carrot is dumb, he just has a very linear way of viewing things, but it's like, mm. but why would she find him attractive? He doesn't get any of her jokes, he doesn't get anyone's jokes, he's just a nice dude. Mm-hmm. What, why should she fall for him? Also, yeah. she seems really bored on all their dates. Yeah. Like, she goes on them because she likes walking and stuff because she's, she likes going for walkies. But um, his dates are really boring and she doesn't seem to actually yeah. really enjoy them as yeah. a side point. And then Gaspode says, he's your master. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm into, not that into that either. either yeah. no. I haven't changed my mind on that. Like, as in, having read more books, I think they develop more of a rapport, but that's, like, the start of their relationship still feels very forced to me. Like, I... I don't see what she would see in him as a romantic partner necessarily. Like I can see like everyone loves Carrot. He he's got something that draws you to him and he seems like a genuinely nice person. But Angular the way she's characterized, it doesn't seem to me that she'd be drawn to someone like that in that way. Mm. But they are also, I feel, quite like she's characterized quite inconsistently throughout like her motives sort of change a bit there's like a section where she's quite dismissive when she thinks that Vimes has been visiting sex workers she makes a comment about oh if she was only two dollars like that wouldn't be very Mm. good which doesn't seem to fit with other things she said previously so I do think that her characterization is a bit shaky in that book and that follows through into how she and Carrot come together at the beginning but that doesn't mean that later on they don't seem like a good fit yeah, no, I, I agree with that. It's a kind of a turning point in the series of Pratchett sort of writing deeper and more interesting women. Uh, mm. where, I mean, we've when we've read a lot of the earlier books, we've noted that they have a few interesting points, but they're often a bit one note or they're very much there to support the male characters. But then they become deeper and more interesting. And it's and it's not until you get, you know, I think I think his best female characters are the witches. And he has introduced them by this stage. And, and Tiffany as well, now that we've started reading those books. Uh, she's so great. I love her so much. But, oh, there's some stuff going on with Angua where he's really trying to figure her out and decide how he wants to write her and what she should be like. I, and I, I, I hate saying this because I don't feel like everyone has to be partnered off in every book ever. But I found myself when I revisited this one shipping her and Gaspo a little bit. Because, oh, no. like... They just, they had, like, because they kind of had their buddy cop thing in this, but they also had quite good banter. And, mm. like, something I thought last time around, which I think I've come even more around to, is it seems like Gasboat is one half of her and Carrot is suiting sort of another half of her. But it does seem like, I don't know, her relationship and conversation with Gasboat is more natural. And I would have liked to see, like, that friendship in other books more. Mm. I guess he's, like, he knows the truth about her. She's not hiding anything from him which makes it mm. a bit easier for her to be herself. Whereas even with Carrot, when they're getting along really well, she is for most of this book keeping it a secret that she's a werewolf. So it's there's that wall between them there, which makes things difficult. Yeah. But like what what do Carrot and Angua talk about? Like now they're in, like after this book, when they're in a relationship and when they're having quiet moments, because I'm just like, how do they pass time? Because it seems he's very earnest and she sometimes makes jokes and... Mm. They don't seem to, like, what is there that... It's a good would, question. Yeah. I mean, what it, Carrot is so, you know, the, the way that he's written is it basically you get the impression that whoever he's talking to 
he's talking to them about whatever it seems they're interested in. Like he just takes an interest in what they're interested in. And so it's hard to know. But then, you know, but every time he takes her on a date, he's taking her to like the The Dwarf Bread Museum, Museum, you know, uh, which is great. Or like, here's an interesting cobblestone, which I would be interested in. But Yeah, me too. I would love to go to the actual Dwarf Bread Museum. But it's weird. I And speaking of Angua and, and Gaspo, though, and also uh, Detritus and Cuddy, they do have those buddy cop vibes. I recently read this great role-playing game for two players called Partners, and it's all about that sort of procedural police drama buddy cop kind of vibe. And it characterizes when you have two people investigating stuff together that one of them is always the straight shooter and the other one is always the wild card. And I'm just wondering, in those pairings, who's who? I mean, I think with Angua and Gaspode, it's pretty clear that Angua is the yeah. straight shooter. Gaspode is the wild card. Detritus is the wild card, I reckon. You reckon? Yeah. yeah. So maybe I'm projecting some Peacemaker stuff from later onto him. but Well, no, I think this works, right? Because he's either so stupid <laughs> that he says things that he doesn't understand, but which inspire Cuddy, or he's got the helmet on and he's so smart. He's like the Sherlock Holmes half of the team like working stuff out that's mm. no one else could understand in a million years so it's yeah i think you're right i think he is the wild card we've got to talk about the other watch members though mm. we'll, and we'll get to vimes i think i think we can leave vimes to last but what about fred and uh and nobby i almost said fred and colin and i'm like no that's the same person <laughs> fred, fred and, and nobby who i mean in this book this is archetypal them mm. Uh, there's a few there's a there's a few bits in later books when we get to those in the podcast where like when Fred goes mad with power while Vimes is away in the fifth elephant, I still feel like that's it's very funny, but I just don't it doesn't seem in character to me. But I was willing to, you know, run with it for the for the comedy. For humor. Yeah. Uh but in this book, like they just they don't do anything weird or wacky. Like, you know, it's not like fit of clay where Fred gets caught up in the, you know, being chased by the Terminator effectively kind of sequence. And it's not like Jingo where they get in disguise and do all that sort of nonsense in, in Clatch. This is them in their element. This is them being flat-footed coppers, which I kind of love. They'd adapt no matter what is going on, like, because they're just there for the long haul. I reckon they'd happily have just done the the three of them basically be in the watch forever, but when it changes, they're also happy with that. And I what I really like about them both as a team is that they're both very much on the same page about sort of, doing the bare minimum but having a little bit of integrity yeah as well yeah no i think so i reckon now i've got but i've got this partners thing in my head again now so i think uh fred is the straight shooter and nobby's the wild card yeah well nobby has to be the wild card like he's a guy who's willing to like cut people's like cut corpses fingers off to get their (laughs) rings on a battlefield so i feel like that's not the straight shooter yeah, no, totally not. And also, you know, like he's, again, he's like remarkably stupid at times. I mean, so is Fred, to be fair. Um, he says a lot of things that he clearly doesn't understand. Uh, but he also says things that sort of spark a little sort of idea. I mean, I don't think, but really they, they're never going to solve any crimes on their own. So I don't, I don't, <laughs> don't know that they quite fit those archetypes anyway, but that's all right. Uh, but we yeah, should, well, that... oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say they're not quite like a buddy cop team they're just kind of, there's something else like they're a team but it's not if you watch <laughs> yeah. their buddy cop movie not much would happen they're like uh hitchcock and scully in yeah. brooklyn 99 you know they're there they're there to be a partners who are just that they show the downsides they're great at paperwork <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, except they're not. Uh, or are they? I can never quite tell. I'm never sure. Uh, I recently got a hold of the Ink More Pork Archives Volume 2, which is the, if you haven't heard about these, everyone, these are um, large coffee table sized books that reprint a lot of the material from the Discworld diaries, which have been long out of print because they only ever produced them in the year they were diaries for. And the new volume, Volume 2, or the newer volume, has the stuff from the watch diary in it. And it's got some great stuff, including, uh, speaking of paperwork, some example reports of an arrest. And there's one from Carrot, which is written in Carrot style with a lot of detail, but then it just has all this list of, like, mistakes made. And you're not sure if, like, he's written this to show mistakes or if he's just been too enthusiastic and made a bunch of mistakes. But then there's one from Nobby where his cousin, I think it is, is stealing from him in the middle of the night. Uh, and so he uh, arrests him and he tries to resist and he kicked him in a fork uh, and, <laughs> and captured him. And that's like, this is a perfect report. It's very clear. Uh, person uh, correctly identified, uh, all this stuff. So maybe maybe they are great at paperwork. They've been doing it yeah. long enough that they, they know what they're doing. And they probably don't do that much other stuff. Yes. Uh, we should talk about Vimes, though, uh, as well. Yeah. Because he's not really, like, he's not as central in this book as he is in other watch books, perhaps. Yeah. Because a thing we noticed, or I think that um, Calderson pointed out, was that he kind of just disappears for the middle of this book. (laughs) Yeah. He's just gone. Uh, That was not an intentional pun. Um, But, (laughs) yeah, there's just a big sort of vime-shaped gap in the middle, and like he's just getting drunk, and presumably getting ready for his wedding a little bit, but... It's unusual for him to just not be around for a watch book. Yeah, that's true. I mean, his presence, I think, is felt the whole time. But he is very much... It's. I, I don't know if Pratchett was trying to figure out how to write this character who previously was at the forefront of everything and now has been sort of promoted to above Street Copper. Oh, but he's... Is he, like... Has he been promoted properly there? Oh, no, yeah, because he, he got promoted there and then he gets promoted again at the end of the book because he just can't stay away from being promoted. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh the, again in the in the Agmore Pork Diaries uh thing from the watch there's a bit where he's writing a letter to the rest of the watch because it's written I think it was it was written like uh just after Jingo so there's a, it's it's in the midpoint of the watch series but he says like I keep getting promoted but I like to think that these promotions are a recognition of the services of the watch as a whole. <laughs> I mean like <laughs> of course you of course you would say that. But yeah, he's it's a bit weird because he he still like sets everything in motion like he tells everyone else you know, Vetinari tells him not to investigate what's going on with the Assassin's Guild and this theft. And he's like, to hell with that. Uh, I'm going to do it. And he tells the others to do it. And then Carrot writes a letter for <laughs> for, um, for Fred, which he reads. Uh, and yeah, it's he's behind the scenes a lot. Mm. It's almost like they're playing a role playing game and whoever's playing Vimes's character just can't make it to a few sessions in the middle. <laughs> so they're like, OK, well. You you're off doing you're getting you're getting ready to get married. Um, yeah, I mean, it's presumably to retire as well because that was the whole thing that the the dread hanging over this as a reader is like, oh, are we going to lose this character from the watch as well because he's yeah. supposed to be getting his gold gold watch and and disappearing off into married bliss. Yeah. So if you don't know what's going to happen, but you've read the previous one, like there mm. is a fear that you're going to lose him as a character. Yeah. And I think this is one of the other tragedies of this book and quite a few of the other watch books that follow. Sybil, who is such a force of nature uh, in Guards Guards, is really not 
very present in this book and, and a lot of the other ones either. Like, she doesn't have a lot to do. She kind of worries about him when he's not there. Mm. She's also busy organising her own wedding. Um, although yeah. then there's that trope of the man getting married is not doing any organising. Like, he doesn't really care about this wedding, apparently. But, yeah, it's it's a bit of a shame. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting though because she still feels like correctly rendered even in the few glimpses we get of her because she's mm. still got that upper class propriety. This is what we do. Um, this is my responsibility kind of thing, which is why she like wants to take a bit of his name, wants to sign over her stuff. Like she, like it makes sense of she hasn't been able to let go of like the traditions of her class, but yeah. also she is someone who raises. Swamp Dragon that regularly explode and things. So it still feels within her character that she would be doing all that stuff and being like, no, no, don't get involved, Sam. Like, you stay up. Like, I don't want your opinion on flowers or tableware. Yeah. As much as I would love to see him dragged, like, I would, I would happily have read a novella or probably a full book of him being forced to plan a <laughs> wedding because that would be Amazing. delightful. Yeah. I could have oh, imagined him. Oh, now I'm imagining young Sam getting married and, and Vimes getting involved in that and to be disastrous father of the bride nonsense. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm very glad, like, when we came to The Fifth Elephant, which I didn't remember very well when we reread it, I was so glad to see Sybil's role substantially increased and in that she has mm. a lot to do in that book. By comparison with the other Watch books, she's still very much a supporting character. But, yeah, she's great in that, and it, she kind of fades away into the background again. I mean, the next one we're reading is, is Night Watch, and she's barely in it at all because most of the action takes place at a time when they haven't met. So it's, yeah, it's I go back and forth, but I do enjoy her as a character very much. Yeah. We, we should talk about the villain as well. Edward nah. Death. <laughs> No. Yeah. Is he interesting? I mean, we've read so many of the villains now. How does he stack up against people like Mr. Teotimi or all the others? I think he's okay, but I mean, he has his his villainy. Sorry, here's Resident oh, Asimov coming to. Hello. Whoops. I'm sorry, funny. <laughs> you fell over. <laughs> you should probably go on the floor. Now. Oh no, you're going on the couch. Sorry. Um. <laughs> there's his tails. Just he's just got to. Yeah, my my cat is he's very he's gone somewhere to be chill, which is not his usual modus operandi when there's a, a Zoom meeting going on. Uh, but usually, he, one thing he sometimes does is he'll stand just sort of there, and this eldritch tentacle of black will just sort of flick around in the. It's very disconcerting. Anyway, um, we um, <laughs> yeah, uh, what 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 were we saying? We we're talking about. Uh, oh, is he interesting? And yeah, I think- Edward Death. I think he is interesting because he he just wants to bring kings back and he's got like quite a clear motivation, but mm-hmm. he does have to split his villainy with the gone. So it's like, is he the bad guy or is he just a conduit through which this is brought back into society when they thought they'd gotten rid of it? Yeah. And I, I have to confess, I forget like a lot about him as a character. Like, I can't, like without going back to the book, I just... He's just a blank space to me, whereas a lot of the villains in subsequent books, I think, stand out more as individuals. But there is yeah. the line that we've talked about, about thinking in italics. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, there's some great stuff in there. there when we when we read Guards, Guards, we saw in the sort of the, the brothers of the Ebon Knight or whatever they're called, the cult, they were very much like the sort of, you know, people who are swayed by far-right demagogues who convince them that everybody else is at fault for the bad things about their life. You're the victims here. 
we saw that allegory there. I think that creeps in here. Like looking at this again now, uh, there's stuff in there about people really wanting to go back to the past. I think the line is like going back to the past as a more defensible position, like wanting things to go back in time because it feels more like you can just be, you know, on top and no one questions it anymore. Uh, and we liked that. And I think that that seems very relevant more than it did when we read it then, you know, in many ways with the way that people backlash against the progression of our society, you know, in ethical mm. and political terms, that some people just, you know, it's, it. I mean, and it is challenging. Like, you know, we, we do have to rethink a lot of our worldviews to make things better and fairer, but the solution is not to stick our heads in the sand and wish it was 50, 70 years ago. Um, but that's what he's doing. But And it's also interesting because a big point that came up last time we discussed this and that I think is still relevant is veterinary, I would argue, is a very good ruler. He does a good job and he's working in the interests of the people rather than in the interests of power. Mm. And Carrot would probably also be a very good king. Like, if it came to it, he would probably do a good job. But it's if you just have two good individuals who are good in the job at the time, it's the succession plan that's a problem. Mm. And in a monarchy, it's more difficult because, like, you just, it's just whoever's related the most to the person who's most recently died. And so you have even less control over who's going to come into the job. Yeah. But what is the succession plan for veterinary? Like, he's surely someone who has thought about it, but it is, it's tricky because. And the plan to bring in a king just as a plan is bad. To bring in Carrot as a king, I guess, is probably quite good. Hello again, buddy. <laughs> uh, yeah, but not intentionally. But not, in, but not instead of veterinary, because veterinary is doing fine. And his motivation isn't like, oh, we need better leadership. It's to go back to tradition, traditional values, mm. rather than wanting improvement for society. But maybe that's what he thinks is what society needs, so it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that this is, you know, like a lot of the watch books, particularly, well, there's three in particular. There's this one, there's Guards, Guards, and there's, um, well, it's not a watch book, but the truth is also like this. And there's, I think there's one more, but it, they're all about deposing Vetinari and replacing him with someone that, you know, the the guild leaders and the lords of the city can either use as a puppet or who they think will be sympathetic to what they want. And it's a repeated theme that people don't like the way Vetinari runs the place, but he is still, he's still a you know, a dictator, <laughs> um, hmm. as much as we love him and he's very efficient and he gets things done and he seems to be quite fair. He's also ruthless. He's He'll put people to death. Just like a king would, though. Yes, that's true. That's true. And and in our later discussions, I can't remember what we said in this first episode, but we ha you, you have floated the idea several times that you think maybe Vetinari is grooming Moist von Lipwig to take over. Yeah, that's something I came up with subsequently. And there's also a... Uh, I can't stop looking at the chat, and there's a, there's a good theory coming up in that, which mm -hmm. we also talked about in the first episode, which is like zombie veterinary, just ruling forever. Maybe maybe it's not going to be a human successor. Like maybe it's a dwarf or a troll or a, a golem live forever. Oh yeah, can he get turned into a vampire and then he can just do Ooh. it forever? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because I think I would love that. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think we've, this has been great to revisit the themes of this book and think about it again in the sort of light of 
the two and a bit years more podcasting and rereading that we've done in between. Uh, wait, three and a bit years. I can never keep... I don't know how long we've been doing this. A long time. <laughs> this is not keep track. It's, it's been a while. <laughs> we'll be going forever at this stage, I think, which is fine because we're not just dropping in the short stories now. We are also intending to start covering the various adaptations because we've had many people ask us if we will. And it's just it's just not going to be possible to do those as bonus episodes, probably. So they'll they'll start dropping in the main feed, I think, soon, or next year at least. So it's it's going to be it's a long it's a long drive. But let's let's get to some questions. We've had some great questions in the chat, and uh, Danny, thank you so much, has been doing a great job uh, collecting those and collating them for us. Why don't we get into some, Liz? All right, do you we'll try and pick... get through all of them, and I'm going to just do it in order. But if we don't get to your question, I'm profusely sorry. Um, so we'll do our best. Yeah, All right. Cool. So we'll start with Danny's example question, which is which character gets most short change in Men at Arms and why is it Gaspode? First of all, <laughs> yes. Completely agree with that. I, I don't think he gets short change. He's, he, people mean, he's are always so kicking many... him. Oh, well, he that's uses true. his like human voice to be able to tell people, stop kicking that dog and maybe also doing the thing. So like people literally treat him like garbage. I mean, I don't know if you <laughs> kick garbage, but yeah. Look, I do we uh, are, is is the suggestion of this question? You think there should be more books where Gasboat is a major like main character? Because there's really only I would say there's only kind of two. Like he's a major character in Moving Pictures, and he's a major character probably in the Fifth Elephant, or at least more major there. And he shows up in a lot of the other Watch books. And in the Truth, he's I love him in the Truth. <laughs> he's so good. I think that's probably my favorite Gasboat appearance. But. uh <laughs> You think you think yes? I I think it's all right. I think it's fine for him to be a great supporting character. You know? Yeah, I think he does well here. Um, like he also serves to characterize Angua quite well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just I, and I know that they they get him a nice home and everything, and he doesn't like that either. So it's not for lack of trying to make things better for him. But yes, I just I was okay. I just want things to work out well for him. <laughs> well, to wish pretty, him all the best. <laughs> that's very reasonable. That's very reasonable. What what what's next? We've got a comment from Carl, which is very valid, um, which is that it doesn't rhyme. It needs to be notes, quotes, footnotes, and goats. Um, so I will work on finding something for my fourth panel that will rhyme. Um. <laughs> uh, jotes. It's like jokes, but you misspell it as a joke. No, totes. that doesn't yeah. work. Totes. Just, yeah. my, uh, just my favorite quote written on illustrations of tote bags. Yes. But, uh, so the next one's from Amy. So this one's one from me. Um, what's your favorite Discworld pun or play on words? This mm. is impossible to answer off the top of my head, actually, because I saw this one come up in the chat. I was like panicking, being like, which one is it? And I, I can't remember off the top. I do love in soul music all the the names of the bands so that you try and work out what what real world band he's referencing because there's <laughs> a lot of great. clever ones in that. And I feel every time I reread that book, there's one I'm like, oh, I can't, like, I didn't get that last time. So perhaps my favorite series, like continuous series of related puns, is mm-hmm. that but okay yeah. i think look I, we, I said this in a recent episode because i think it is possibly one of my favorite ones but in uh in the light fantastic there's a line about um i think it's i can't remember if it's about wizards or books now but he talks about you can't keep too many of them together because you might get a critical black mass and i just <laughs> just thought that was very very good i think that one just tickled me because it was a science and a cult pun <laughs> Uh, combined into one. So I quite enjoyed that. I think that's my favourite. But there are... Oh, there's so many. Can't pick a favourite. Come on. Yeah, it's like picking... Yeah. 
Um, so the next one's from Stuart, which is for Ben. So Ben, if you were doing a radio adaptation of the Discworld, would you start with Men at Arms or another book? Oh, no, I don't think I would. I, uh, I think I, I'm, I'm like, I'm imagining this if you're doing a series, cause there have been adaptations for radio of a lot of the books as sort of standalone things, but I can imagine if you're doing it as a series and you were, you were trying to do, I mean, I think the watch is such, I mean, and this was the idea I mean, of the original idea for the watch and it sort of obviously evolved differently to that for the tv series but the original idea was let's make the basis of the show this sort of procedural crime drama about the watch and then we can bring in other characters around that and expand the stories outward and i think that's what i would do so i'd probably start more with guards guards but i think i would adapt it to feel more like the later watch books so that there was this consistent feel throughout and then sort of bring in some other characters as we went yeah i think that's what i'd do Hmm. All right, next question is from Steve. Um, so in Men at Arms, we get to see inside the Fool's Guild. Would Elizabeth feel at home in this place of official puns and jokes? I don't know what guild I'd like to be in, though. Not Fool's Guild. For me. Not <laughs> Fool's Guild. Yeah, not Fool's Guild. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. We've two comedians here. Another is going to be yeah. in the Fool's Guild. <laughs> so I'd like to start by saying how much I enjoy the description of the Fool's Guild because it is oh. the grimmest place of mechanical jokes and just like the whitewash not quite falling down and it's just it's there's just a deeply unhappy feeling to it and it's right next to the assassin's guild which is so like inappropriate and appropriate in the same way yeah um i guess it depends like because i feel like the fool's guild would have approved jokes and you can only work from a specific handbook of things and within a certain parameter and also probably certain people own certain types of jokes and you can't make like, it would be, like, the faces as well. You can't, like, someone will own, like, this kind of thing or this kind of pun. Yeah. So I feel like I could carve out a niche over a very long time, but I I also think it would kill the joy of comedy for me as well, I, being in the Fool's Guild, because it, it's not a funny place. I mean, look, <laughs> I, speaking as someone who now teaches as part of a comedy degree, um, I, feel, I feel like the Fool's Guild would have to evolve. Uh, I think there's still a place for traditional, cl- like even in the real world, there's definitely still a place for traditional clowning. But And there's also, you know, the traditional sort of king's fool, like Verence, uh from <laughs> Weird Sisters, who we get a lot of description of his backstory being in the Fool's Guild, uh, learning that rather than being a clown. And they do have very prescribed ways in which to act. Like it's very, com- I think I said this in the Men at Arms episode when we were talking about it, it's very Commedia dell'arte. It's like, here's your specific character put on this mask and now you have these characteristics away you go uh but i think i think they would have have to evolve you know i think there's probably a burgeoning stand-up comedy scene in angmore pork now mostly like a soul music kind of book but about yeah. comedy yeah that would be great and i think that would be coming up and most of those people would be just doing it off their own backs but then the fool's guild would be like we've got to get in on this and create a course for doing it so yeah i think i think that would be the way to go all right. Um, this one's from Heath. So this one's about um, the relationship between Angua and Carrot. So I always felt like the Force nature was kind of the point being made, kind of like they should be together so they do get together. And I think that is a very good point because there mm. is a kind of air of destiny about it, especially with the whole sort of implication about Carrot's background. So yeah. I think that's very fair. Yeah. No, I, I go along with that. That's a great comment. Thank you. Hmm. All right, so the next one is from Joanne. What was the first Terry Pratchett book you read, not necessarily for the podcast? Ooh, well, I mean, I think uh, for those who haven't listened to the podcast, you might have heard this story before, But so you can go back and listen to it in several, I think two or three different episodes. 
the short version for me is that I was a massive Douglas Adams fan, still am, uh, and I, when I was way too young to get most of the jokes, and I ran out of Douglas Adams books. Um, this was years before he died. But I uh, and my mum went into a bookshop and said, my son loves Douglas Adams. What else should he read? And they said, this guy. And she bought me The Colour of Magic. And so I, I read, the first things I read were uh, the Discworld books in order up to where they were being published at the time, which I think was Interesting Times. And then I started reading all this other stuff as well. So I actually was wrong about the first Terry Pratchett book oh, I yes. read. Because I thought that the first one I read was The Fifth Elephant because I have this thing where I... And I still do it sometimes, um, but especially as a teenager, I would go into the library and just choose something at random, often off the returns rack. So like, I'd look at the, the strange collection of books put all together, and I'm like, oh, people chose to read these ones. I wonder what here looks interesting. And I picked up The Fifth Elephant that way. And it is, I would argue, one of the worst Discworld books to start with because it's like later on it's really yes. confusing you're not invested in anyone obviously it was fine because I was like I want to read more of these and so I went back to the library and I would just get whichever ones were available at the time because while they had a full set they were often checked out so it was just a matter of what happened to be on the shelf when I was hmm. there so I had a very ad hoc approach to reading Discworld but for the longest time I thought that The Fifth Elephant was the first one I read but then when we did the bromeliad, I realized that I'd actually read them in year seven because my teacher, who was really, like, she was an excellent teacher of the sort that I hope that every child has at some point, um, she would bring in books from home and had a bookshelf in the classroom in addition to the school library, but ones that she thought would be quite good for our class specifically, and she recommended mm -hmm. them to me. And I remember I read them, and so... I'd, I hadn't connected those as Terry Pratchett books so until we went through. back to it. And I, yeah. I just think that I hadn't connected that as something. Because I read a lot in middle school and junior school. So at my the uh, the short version is the bromeliad, but for the longest time I thought it was the fifth elephant. Oh, wow. I just saw in the chat Tanya's saying that she's a teacher and recently they read Only You Can Save Mankind in class. I, that's fascinating to me. I would love to know how that went because... It is such a book of its time in terms of the video games representation and uh, a lot of the themes, which because it's all about the Gulf War. I would love to know what kids reading it now think about it. That's cool. And I absolutely wish that I had found the Johnny books when I was the the like, younger, because mm. I think like especially like the one about the graveyard. It feels like it was written specifically for me. Like it's just all of my interests crammed into a book, and I'm just like, how yeah. did I like not find this earlier? So. Yeah. Well, like like I said at the time when we were reading them, um, while I didn't come to them until a few years later, I was Johnny's age at the time those books are set or slightly pretty close. Like I think there's a year or, year or so older or younger, but uh, so it felt they felt very, very familiar <laughs> to me. It was great. So next question is from Tanya. So, Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Therefore, death is the villain. Discuss. So that's it. Yeah. It's a tricky one in this book because like... Yeah, because yeah. the gun is speaking to him in his head. But I think there is some ambiguity there where it's not clear if the gun really... I mean, because you could read the book in the most obvious way, which is the gun has this supernatural power to influence people. But you can also read it as an allegory that people are just overtaken by the power of being so easily able to kill someone else mm. uh, at a distance or, you know, without any particular physical effort 
and I think you you could absolutely read that as an allegory and that you know some people because the way Vimes thinks about it when he picks it up is quite like he feels that power and he's like no I don't want to have anything like he's fighting it yeah so that's oh that's a good point because it's the fact that there's only one in there as well it's a it allows like something that probably exists within most people to come out in a way that might not otherwise be as readily apparent Mm. so yeah I agree with that as well yeah. Well, it just, that's it's not very exciting if you disagree. I should, I feel like I should just have a contrarian <laughs> opinion to, to bring things along, but I think that is a very strong point, and I'm completely on board with that. Yeah. So many great questions. We're moving on to our final question, which is from well, Amy. I think, I think we might have one more after this, but we'll, let's go with this one first. All right. So would Veterinary come back as a zombie if he could? Could a zombie run Ankh-Morpork? So we touched on this, but, like, would he is a, is a great question. Yeah. I would love it if he did, because like, I'm just, I think, great, he's got all the right things, but would, I mean, would your motivations change over an eternal life? Like, would you just get fed up? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a tough question, right? Because I think he could do the job indefinitely, but I don't think he'd want to. I think no. he'd feel like at a certain point, it's time for him to step down. Like, I feel like that's part of his calculus in that the way he's evolving the city and pushing it forward is trying to get to a point where the systems that make it work and make it fairer can continue regardless of who is at the top and that the person at the top has to deal with, you know, extreme situations and emergencies and difficulties, but that the city itself now will like kind of keep going. I think that that's my hope for Vetinari. It's, I don't think he ever says anything like that, but I feel like part of his goal is to make himself obsolete. Yeah, but I do think that potentially, as you said earlier, he might be a little bit grooming Moist One Living for the role, or as, like, he probably has a few, like, options that he's working on or contingency plans, but, yeah. Yeah. Because you need to also, like, he would probably want to make himself obsolete in the city to run on its own, but you also need to have a way to nip in the bud anyone who wants to inevitably bring back kings or to take over for themselves and things and so even if you have like a great functional city running on its own without leadership you'll still have like that human nature that's gonna make people try and take over even if it's to the detriment of society in general because that's human Mm. nature so i don't know how you could make yourself obsolete and prevent that from happening like 50 60 10 years down the line after you're done yeah difficult Difficult. all right we're running Time and time. So was there that last question? There is that one more. Linda's Linda's managed to slip one in at the end here. We'll try and click it. She says, death collects the souls of people and separates the soul from the body, as we know in Reaper Man and Mort, but death does not actually cause the end of life. So does death actually cause death? This is a good, like, metaphysical one. We might have to think about this, Liz. This could be one we hang on to. Mm. It's a great It's one I'd like to think about more, but it also depends on, like, how death is defined in the disc world because like even like in round world death is like we've talked about this before death is not consistently defined like what Mm. is death but that's a great one that i'm gonna have to mull for a while but i think that's that's kind of all the time we've got thank you everyone for your great questions if you want to listen to pratchat you can find it at pratchatpodcast.com and on all the places where good podcasts are given away for free because they don't cost anything 
You can also, if you like, choose to support the podcast. And if you become a subscriber, you get access to our subscriber-only bonus podcast, The Ook Club. And depending on the level you support us at, you might even get some extra goodies in the mail. Yeah, and thank you for listening to us. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux and Ben McKenzie. That's me, recorded live at Nullus Anxietus, The Lost Con. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag PratchatNALC. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.